This Sunday begins the most solemn and sacred time of the year for the Christian churches that we call liturgical churches. And in my sermon this morning, I want to do a couple of things. One is to do a little teaching moment about uh, Palm Sunday and by extension Holy Week. And then to say something about all three readings that we heard this morning from Isaiah chapter 50, from Philippians, and Luke's version of the Passion Gospel. Anton Baumstark, a liturgical scholar in the mid-19th century, said, at the solemn and most holy times of the year, the most ancient customs are observed. And what we have this morning is a liturgy given to us that uh, largely we have taken or lifted from Egeria's diaries. Egeria was a pious woman, perhaps a member of a religious order, from Gaul. And she went on a pilgrimage about 440 CE to Jerusalem. And as she went, and when she got to Jerusalem, she kept a diary. And she kept a diary about what they did on these great days. And so Palm Sunday is one of the times that she wrote somewhat meticulously about what she observed. Over the last two or three years, I have preached against some of my colleagues who have come to believe that uh, they just don't want to read the Passion Gospel on Palm Sunday because it's too depressing. It just talks about awful things, and we just don't want to do that, you know. Like my Sunday school kid who, at St. Matthew's Church, on uh, the, day, the Sunday after Ascension Day, when the Paschal candle wasn't in the chapel anymore, and I asked them why, and he said, because we don't have to think about Jesus anymore. So you get the savior of the world with the passion. And Christian people in some way have been able to put together uh, how that might extend to their own self-understanding about their Christian vocation. I think the problem is that in terms of the liturgical renewal in Western Christianity about 40 or 45 years ago, uh, we combined what used to be called Passion Sunday, which was the week before Palm Sunday, with Palm Sunday. And that's because Egeria tells us that these two things, the reading of the Passion Gospel and the Palm Liturgy and the Palm Procession, happened on the same day, just at different times of the day. So there was some gap that observed uh, symbolically the reality that we had the triumphal procession of Jesus that we read about in Luke's Gospel today, and then subsequent to that, the events of the Passion. And so sometimes they get mashed together, and we lose the integrity of what this is all about. The earliest written material that formed the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and indeed John, were the Passion narratives. That's why on Palm Sunday and on Good Friday, we read the whole thing as a unit because it was the first stuff that was written down. 
all of the material that's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and indeed John, is attached to the Passion narrative. And if you want to amaze your friends, you can call them by their name in biblical scholarship, and that is pericopes. <laughs> comes from a Greek word. We won't go there. But that's where it comes from. So we read the Passion narrative, and we also do the Palm Liturgy, because it juxtaposes what some may think are two mutually exclusive things. The triumphal entry of the Savior, the Son of God, and the Messiah, with the Son of God and the Messiah's arrest, trial, crucifixion. So when we think about this, we think, gee, why are they put together in this way? And I can understand why some people might be a little confused, but that's the way it is. <coughs> Excuse me. So the, the next thing I want to say about this is that when we celebrate the Passion narrative, we're celebrating something that calls to mind uh, how we understand the nature of suffering, the meaning of the cross and its centrality in our common life together. And those are the topics that we will take up when we get to Good Friday. So let's talk about the other readings from Isaiah, from Philippians, and then the gospel that we read today uh, itself. What we read from today, chapter 50 of Isaiah, second Isaiah, just so you know this, there were three Isaiahs, Isaiah, 2nd Isaiah, and 3rd Isaiah, also referred to as Trito-Isaiah. Why is that? Because the stories that are told, the prophecies that are told in, in the book of the prophet Isaiah uh, pass, span so many years that no single human being would have lived that long. You can't live for 250 years. Don't give me this thing. Well, God can do anything he wants. Most of us have never met anybody 250, right? So it's perfectly okay to say that maybe Isa had students who wrote and were faithful to what he taught and wrote about. That's what we mean when we say that. So today he is talking about, we're, he, we're hearing something called a servant song. And he's telling us something about how we understand what the role of the suffering servant is for Israel. Because second Isaiah is talking about coming back from the Babylonian captivity. He's talking about the period of suffering that the people endured and have now come out of that and are returning to Jerusalem. You can read the Old Testament as though there never was a New Testament. There's a whole faith tradition called Judaism that does just that. They read the Hebrew Bible as an integral whole, and they understand their faith and belief from that, not informed in any way by the Christian scriptures. But Christians who believed in the Messiahship of Jesus and believed that he was, in fact, the fulfillment of all that was written about in their sacred scriptures, which were also the Hebrew Bible. They believed that they could understand them as predictive 
of Jesus and his suffering and death and resurrection. Reginald Fuller, one of the great biblical scholars of the 20th century, wrote in a commentary about this passage from 2nd Isaiah, we see that this is about moving from exile to deliverance. From exile they made the connection, early Christians, between Jesus' passion as the outcome of his obedient delivery of the message of the kingdom despite his people's rejection and his constant reliance that God would prove him right. Have you ever lived in your life through some things where you, that's what you had to rely on? God's presence in your life and the belief that God was there even if you couldn't see it? That's what this is about in personal terms and corporate terms because they understood them first, themselves first as a people, not as an individual existent, as they say in philosophy. The passion and death of Christ are not isolated events, but of a peace with him, his whole ministry. The early church was right in seeing that the servant songs came to rest in the passion and death of its Lord. So in 2nd Isaiah, we're reading now about how the Savior comes obediently and undergoes the suffering and brings the redemption of the world along with him. And your redemption, our redemption, which means, of course, to be healed, to learn how now to keep our uh, personal demons at bay, to understand how to become less anxious in front of the reactivity and anxiety of other people, to have the stamina and the perseverance to be able to hold to those ideals that we have as individuals that we believe we want to accomplish and to assist others in their processes of moving to maturity and wholeness. And this comes now with Paul, the famous hymn that we read today in Philippians called the Carmen Christi. And in this hymn, he begins with, Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. I mean, do we have to think his thoughts and feel his feelings? No, we know where that leads. But what it means is to affirm that you believe that the Savior is the template. His teaching and his acts are the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And by extension, then coming to the realization, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. And so Paul gives us something today that is appropriate for speaking about Jesus' suffering on the cross because it is the ultimate form of self-giving. And each one of us does not need to be crucified in order to follow the Savior. But each of us knows that there is some species of self-giving that is necessary to come to some sense of wholeness and to touch our true humanity. And it is today that Paul affirms that in 2 Corinthians. So I want you to imagine two processions into Jerusalem. Jesus, 
moving now from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem with people treating him as a king on a colt, spreading their cloaks in front of him, greeting him with branches along the way, signs of kingship. Jesus symbolically reenacts the coming of the kingdom of God in a way that would be familiar to people living in the ancient Near East in first century Palestine. Because guess what the second procession is? The second procession, procession is Pontius Pilate coming in from the other direction with the imperial Roman army because it is going to be Passover and when it's Passover, the Jews get restive and he's fearful that there may be some uprising in Jerusalem. And so he's bringing his army with him from Caesarea, the capital of Palestine, not Jerusalem. And he's bringing his army in there to make sure that everything's going to be fine. In the Roman imperial system, when the emperor or the emperor's minions came into a place in a procession, he was referred to as the Son of God. And so here we have a guy on a colt who's coming in from the other end of Jerusalem that is called the Son of God. Hold that thought for a minute. In the Passion narrative from Luke, we have a different tone that is set, different from Mark and Matthew in the synoptic tradition. Both of them essentially tell the same story because they use the same sources. But Matthew and Mark treat this event as just a pure tragedy. You know, this is important to say this because there are four Gospels in the New Testament, not one. And when the Christian church put together the canon of the Holy Scriptures, they kept four Gospels. The four Gospels do not agree with one another. And the people who put the canon of the New Testament together knew that and said, it's okay. There's a reason for this. And the reason is that each one of these things is like one facet of the whole diamond. So today, what inspires us from Luke's gospel is not tragedy, but pathos. Pathos means uh, understanding, well, it's, the definition is an experience of a work of art that arouses feelings of pity, sympathy, tenderness, or sorrow, or, can be, or an event as well. And Jesus, in this version, in Luke's version, is the sympathetic person even in the midst of his suffering. He's going to his own death and he looks at the women of Jerusalem and he speaks to them with great tenderness and sympathy. And by extension, when the Lucan community who wrote this gospel uh, understood this, it was their own experience of the grace of the Savior that they all felt. Remember what's happening historically. Luke's gospel was written in 85 AD. The Roman imperial system destroyed the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. 
They burned the temple down, and most people ran out of the city. It was rubble. So Luke's community already knew what happened, and so when you hear Jesus say in Luke's gospel what is going to happen, it was predictive of what did happen. And the people reading Luke's gospel said, we know, we have lived through it, we understand it. And so we get from Luke this great sense of sympathy and the Savior's concern for others. And by extension, an admonition by uh, the Lucan community that we should do the same. So on Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday, the great question you need to always ask, no matter whose gospel we read, is which procession do you want to be in? Amen.